Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 12, part 1, the 1948 election. So in this episode, we will be exploring the 1948 election. What were the issues? Who were the players? What were the American politics of the period, and how would all of this affect the Cold War? But before we jump into all that, I wanted to, to level set. This is not a political podcast. I won't be sharing my political, religious, or ideological beliefs with you or tell you who you should be voting for in the upcoming 2016 election. However, elections in politics are an inescapable aspect of history, and I think it would be remiss of me not to examine the 1948 election in contrast to the current election of 2016. Like I outlined in our intro episode, episode zero, part of the reason we examine history is to gain perspective about our own time. Second, understanding the elections of the past will give us a greater insight into our current election. And finally, the story of 1948 has a number of life lessons I think we can all learn from. So throughout this episode, I will be highlighting a number of similarities and contrasts between the 1948 and 2016 elections. I apologize to those listeners in 2017 or 2018. This episode may seem a little dated, but I think you will still find the history very captivating. That said, although I will be making comparisons between these events, uh, th they are not absolute. As Mark Twain said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. That being said, as well, I want you to remember that the Republicans, Progressives, and Democrats of 2016 were not the Republicans, Progressives, and Democrats of 1948. There are similarities and some continuities between then and now, but there are huge differences as well. Many people view the major parties in the U.S., the Democrats and the Republicans, as monolithic, but in many ways the parties are extremely factional. Both parties are composed of different factions, and these factions don't always agree on things. I think this was clearly on display this year in both the Republican and Democratic parties. One of the similarities between the election of 48 and today is the effect of technology and technical methodologies on elections. Today, social media like Twitter, used extensively by Trump, are, are affecting elections like never before. In 1948, the new techno media technology was television. A new 7-inch black-and-white TV cost $149.50, or about $1,500 in today's money. The average person made around $52 a week or about $500 again in today's money. So TVs were a luxury, mostly owned by the rich, upper, the upper middle class, and some bars and business establishments uh, which were accessible to the public. By June 1948, some 314,000 homes had TVs with another 45,000 TVs and bars and other public settings. Although radio, newspaper, newsreels, and newspapers continued to dominate the election coverage, for those of you who might not know, newsreels were short 10- to 15-minute news films that were, would be viewed or aired before movies. Uh, they typically focused on some important event or gave a brief overview of important happenings of the world at that time. Now, the 1940 Republican convention had been broadcasted to a limited TV audience, but TV in 1940 had no measurable effect on the 1940 election. Nevertheless, TV did play a minor role in 1948 for the first time. TV, of course, uh, would have a lasting impact on politics. Long speeches and long newspaper articles would be replaced in the coming decades with a 22-minute news broadcast packaged with focus group-driven ads. The election in 1948 was tracked by NBC and CBS and became the first election followed by the news. 
The news was presented by a leading announcer, uh, uh, both male, who smoked on camera, assisted by a number of young, beautiful women dressed stylishly. The women didn't speak on camera, smile, or wave at the cameras as politics was serious business. TV would cover three of the four conventions in 1948, and candidates gave a few televised speeches and interviews. Only the Northeast enjoyed good reception, though, as this was still the days of rabbit ears, which were small antennas. The broadcast range of television at the time was 50 miles, and in order to reach the largest audience, three of the four major parties held their conventions in Philadelphia. Ironically, the Democratic Convention was held there again in 2016 for the first time since 1948. The conventions were watched by 10 million people in a country of more than 125 million. The conventions were broadcast in 18 cities from Boston to Richmond. The four networks, NBC, CBS, ABC, and Dumont, along with a few small local stations, pooled the resources in order to provide around-the-clock coverage of the Democratic and Republican conventions. Despite the emergence of TV, though, radio was still king. Millions of people listened to the election process over the radio. The public heard speeches by the politicians, but also uh, political spots or quick 30-second political endorsements. Broadcasters thought it was their duty at the time to bring the political process to the people, and the government mandated that if a station allowed one politician to air their views, that they had to give equal airtime to the opposing uh, views or candidate. In terms of methodology, uh, the big thing today, of course, is uh, big data, predictive analytics, and social listening, understanding what voters believe and how they will vote. In 1948, the new science was polling. For the first time, polling agencies such as Gallup started making nationwide polls and predicting the outcome of elections. Pollsters truly believed that they could scientifically predict the outcome of the elections months in advance. They believed that public opinion was only in flux for a, for a short amount of time before it became hardened. One other similarity is the existence of political organizations like MoveOn.org or American Crossroads. These organizations donate to candidates, politically attack opponents, and generally try to get politicians in power that support their ideological views. The most influential organization in 1948 was the ADA, or Americans for Democratic Action, which is actually still around today. The ADA was founded by Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, FDR's wife, and a number of liberal intellectuals after the death of FDR to help keep uh, Roosevelt's New Deal vision of America alive. The ADA was influential because of its following amongst opinion makers in New York City. New York at the time was the United States' cultural capital. Most writers, artists, radio announcers, and national journalists lived there. The group was composed of the cultural elite, defined by a cluster of white men and a few white women. They socialized with, with one another, argued with each other, and interacted with the financial and political power brokers of Wall Street and Washington. The ADA was a relatively small group, but its members had immense cultural and political power with a substantial budget. Many of its followers had been attracted to communism in the 1930s, but by the 1940s, they were thoroughly opposed to communism and the Soviet Union. Another similarity between today and 1948 were issues around race. In 1948, the civil rights movement was just beginning. One of the most contentious issues was lynching in the South, similar to the issue of police shootings today. One issue, which many people think is new to our time, which is not new at all, is the issue of money and politics. Politics then, as now, was expensive, and radio ads, just like TV ads today, were just as expensive. So just like today, candidates were always trying to raise money. 
If a candidate wanted to purchase 15 minutes of radio time for a national broadcast, it would cost roughly $10,000 in 1948 or roughly $100,000 in today's prices on NBC and CBS. Or you could go cheap with ABC for about $60,000 in 2016 money. However, rates could be negotiated and networks gave discounts if candidates committed to multiple dates and time blocks. It cost an estimated fifty to sixty thousand dollars in nineteen forty eight or six hundred and thousand in today's money to run for a Senate seat in a rural state like Oregon. For president it was about thirteen million or roughly a hundred and twenty nine million in twenty sixteen dollars. In contrast to today, organizations were limited from donating to candidates. The Supreme Court decision of Citizens United has of course lifted these limits, but at the time they were limited to Three million, or roughly thirty million, in today's money. Individuals were limited to five thousand or fifty thousand dollars in twenty sixteen money. Today, the average American can still only privately donate five thousand to a political candidate. However, despite these limitations being in place in nineteen forty eight, there were a number of loopholes that allowed organizations and individuals to funnel more money into campaigns. I wanted to take a quick break here and thank you again for listening. If you enjoy the show, please tell your friends or spread the word about us on Facebook or Twitter or take a moment to visit our website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. I also want to give a quick shout-out to Anto Welsh and Mike Osta for helping to support the show. We appreciate your support. As you can imagine, me and my colleague invest a lot of, of our personal time and resources in bringing you the show. Buying books, recording equipment, hosting the podcast, and the website all adds up. The average episode takes about 10 to 15 hours of work to create. Don't get me wrong. I love making this show, but a little financial help would help us to produce a better show and help lighten the burden on us a little. So if you enjoy the show, please support us uh, through Patreon and the website so that we can keep the show coming to you. Even a small donation can go a long way. Additionally, when you visit the website, be sure to fill out our survey so that you can help us to bring you a better show. Also, I wanted to announce that we added a sources slash books page to the website. So if you're interested in learning more about some of the themes we cover in the show or the Cold War in general, feel free to check it out. Now back to the show. One of the big contrasts between 2016 and 1948 is in 1948, you had four major political parties running for the presidency versus the usual two that we have today. I find this interesting because many Americans complain about the two-party system and lack of choice. Americans in 1948 had their choice from the far-right Dixiecrats to the far-left progressives. One of the other major differences between that time and our own is respect for politicians. I know this might be hard to believe, but most people deeply respected and trusted politicians at the time. This was a time before non-existent WMDs in Iraq, not having relations with Monica Lewinsky or Watergate. Unlike many Americans today, most Americans at the time were optimistic about their future and trusted for the most part what their elected officials told them. Another major difference was the way parties selected their candidates. Prior to 1968, the party candidates were chosen via the convention. After 1968, candidates would win state delegates via election in state primaries and state delegates would be bound to vote for them at the convention. That way a winner would be elected before the convention began. TV had helped to change this process. After the violence and chaos of the 1968 Democratic Convention and the way it looked on TV, the parties decided to move towards a primary system and away from the party bosses. 
It was decided to make the convention's elaborate coronation ceremonies versus the smoky, chaotic, unsightly political mosh pits where a candidate was bitterly selected. Although the Democratic Party remains a mixed system with quote-unquote superdelegates, a system by which individuals have a secret number of delegate votes, this system is controversial to say the least, but the Republicans are entirely dependent on primaries to select their representative today. There were, however, in 1948, a small number of states that did hold primaries for their delegates at the convention, but most delegations to go to the convention were chosen by state political party bosses. The American people might have selected the president, but the menu of candidates was prepared by the party bosses. For those of you who may not be familiar, the American election system is a winner-take-all model. It is not done on a proportional system. The winner takes all. It doesn't matter if you win by one vote or 100 votes. There is no second place or participation trophies, just the agony of defeat and the dustbin of history, where you are remembered on some podcasts as a footnote to history. Our presidential election system is, to say the least, Byzantine and convoluted. After the parties select their nominees, they compete to win the most votes in what it, uh, what's called the Electoral College. The presidency is basically determined by 50 today, or 48 in 1948, simultaneous state elections. Each state has a number of electoral votes assigned to it based on its population. You have to receive a two-thirds or absolute majority of these votes to win the presidency. So today there are 538 electoral votes, so you, a majority of 270 is needed to capture the presidency. Why we use the system and the history behind it is a subject of an entirely different podcast. The country in 1948 lived in the wake of two great disasters, the Great Depression and the Second World War. During the Great Depression between 1929 and 1932 alone, worldwide GDP fell by an estimated 15%. By comparison, worldwide GDP fell by less than 1% from 2008 to 2009 during the Great Recession. Unemployment in the U.S. rose to 25%, or about 17 million people. Many of those who still had a job were either underemployed or they worked at a part-time position. Thousands of others lived in tenement housing or looked for work as hobos riding the rails from city to city. The tragedy of the Great Depression that seemed to be never-ending in the 1930s was followed by the horror and carnage of the Second World War that saw 418,500 American deaths. So above all, Americans feared returning to the Great Depression and or fighting another world war. 1946 was a rough year economically for the nation. The nation saw the reawakening of labor management conflicts that had lain dormant during the war years. Severe shortages in housing and consumer products and the widespread dissatisfaction with inflation, which is at one point hit 6% in a single month. Added to this polarized environment was a wave of destabilizing strikes in major industries. A series of steel strikes in January 1946 involving 800,000 workers, the largest in the nation's history, was followed by a coal strike in April and a rail strike in May. November 1945 to June 1946 saw the greatest period of strikes in American history. Three million workers from across American industries went out on strike, in industries such as oil, steel, electric, coal, miners, bus drivers, janitors, and even coffin makers. Most of these strikes were in relation to working conditions. During the war, labor relations had been held in check by the cooperation between unions, the government, and business, but with the war over, they lost their common goal. Moreover, many of the workers were afraid of losing their jobs and angry over declining wages and the growing unemployment and competition for the work amongst returning GIs. 
1947, the economy started to turn around, but the fear of economic depression would last in most people throughout the rest of their lives. Both my grandfather and my grandmother always talked about the return of the depression and saved cash in odd places just in case the banks failed. By 1948, almost all the government and economic controls were gone, and despite the strength of the economy, inflation had replaced unemployment as the largest concern, growing at a rate of 18.1% in 1946 and 8.8% in 1947. For example, the New York subway had to raise its prices for the first time ever from 5 to 10 cents since the beginning of operations in 1904. Another world war during this period also seemed highly, highly likely with events in Eastern Europe and Berlin. Some 20 million Americans had served in World War II, with about a million men who saw extensive combat. In contrast, today, only 2.5 million Americans served in Iraq and Afghanistan. Most Americans at that time had a close-up experience with war and had known someone who had died in the conflict. Thousands of women were left widowed during the, the war. The men that did return home wanted to marry, settle down, find a job, and buy a home. The women, who had only a few years before had been working on the factory floors, found themselves quietly but firmly being encouraged to return to domestic life. Thousands of marriages took place across the country, which was followed by the births of thousands of babies. Between 1948 and 1950, the marriage rate hit an all-time high, and the birth rate increased by 25% for whites and by more than 30% for non-whites. Running out of housing for all these new families, the new suburbs soon sprang up. These new homes were filled with the newest appliances, refrigerators, toasters, dishwashers, electric irons, vacuums, TVs, etc. This new material wealth, which was unprecedented in American history, brought with it a new culture and the American dream of a house in the suburbs, a new car in the driveway, the white picket fence, two kids and a dog. Truman had succeeded Roosevelt as president, and with it the mantle of the New Deal and the nation and government that FDR had forged in the wake of the Depression and the World War. FDR had created one of the greatest and longest-lasting political coalitions in history. FDR had the solid support of the farmers and labor. The South had been traditionally democratic since the Civil War in the 1860s. Ironically, though, FDR had been able to attract large numbers of blacks to the party despite their former allegiance to the party of Lincoln and the Republicans. However, the white Republican Party had changed in the 1870s and had become the party of big business with less interest in the issues of black Americans. In the 1930s, like most Americans, blacks were hit hard by the Depression. FDR made promises to aid the black community, which attracted many blacks into the Democratic Party and away from the Republicans. However, unlike now, African Americans voted for both parties in substantial numbers, and many blacks had defected from the Democratic Party back to the Republicans in the midterm 1946 election. Beginning in the 1920s and into the 1940s, millions of blacks had migrated from the south to northern cities in California in the search of jobs. Detroit's African-American population grew by 40% in the 1950s. In San Francisco, it had grown by 237%. They largely settled in the key electoral states of New York, Illinois, Pennsylvania, Michigan, New Jersey, California, and Ohio. With the end of the war and the sacrifices of African-Americans towards victory, blacks rightly demanded an end to segregation, Jim Crow, and equal treatment in society. For those of you who might not know, Jim Crow was a series of state laws that suppressed freedoms of African Americans to vote, marry, own property, attend higher education, and legalize the separation of the races, mostly in southern states. 
The FDR alliance was also weakened by the changing demographics and economy of the nation as well. The number of farmers were dwindling, and the cities grew to comprise more and more of the vote. The suburbs and cities were the new heart of the country, although farm states like Kansas, Iowa, Missouri, and Nebraska still played a major role. The economic boom of the, of the intermediate war period passed by, by them as farmers struggled with rising prices. Despite the growth of cities, the traditional Democratic Party machines had been in decline for years. For those of you who might not be familiar, political machines were corrupt organizations that provided social services and jobs in exchange for votes dating back to the early 19th century, like Tammany Hall in New York, Pendergrass in, in Kansas City, or Mayor James Curley in Boston. They could no longer turn out the vote like they once did. Journalists exposed the, their corruption, and the federal government began to go after corruption in the cities. Progressive-era reformers at the turn of the century successfully compelled local governments to introduce civil service systems to replace party patronage and government employment. These issues, along with economic troubles immediately following the war and the loss of the towering figure of Roosevelt himself, strained the New Deal coalition. By 1946, many people were tired of big government programs, high taxes, and government regulations. Rationing and price controls were another bone of contention for many Americans, and these issues, along with the massive strikes of 1946, led many Americans to vote Republican, which saw the Republicans capture Congress for the first time since 1932. The new Republican Congress and Truman clash on domestic issues. The Republicans introduced Taft-Hartley. The act restricts the activities and the power of labor unions from interfering with how companies operate their business. It prevented sympathy strikes, or when one group of workers strike on another work group of workers' behalf, banned foremen and managers from joining unions, and it permitted right-to-work laws in some states, allowing states to hire non-union members and force union leaders to assign affidavits disavowing communism. Truman vetoed the legislation, but the Republicans were able to overcome his veto with a two-thirds majority vote. Truman and the Republicans also clashed on tax issues. The Democrats had already cut taxes on the highest brackets from 94 to 85% and the lowest from 23 to 19% after the war. 12 million people fell off the tax rolls entirely. With the war over and many of the New Deal pro programs concluded, the budget had shriveled from $98 billion in 1945 to $33 billion in 1948. By July 1948, the Treasury Secretary announced one of the largest surpluses in history at $8 billion. The Republicans wanted to cut deeper, though, and passed a $6 billion tax cut. Truman again vetoed the bill. The Republicans tried to overturn the veto again, but lacked the votes this time to overturn it. Truman's popularity with the American public had also floundered. By 1947, his approval rating had fell to just 35%, although Congress's approval rating was lower than his. Despite their differences on domestic policy, the Republicans and Democrats worked closely together and shared a common foreign policy agenda and objectives of containing the spread of communism. However, Truman faced a powerful critic in his own party, former Vice President Henry Wallace, who, who seemed like a serious threat to Truman's chances of getting reelected. Wallace had served as FDR's VP from 1940 to 1944, but was pushed out by the rest of the Democratic Party in favor of Truman as many Democrats felt his views and opinions were too socialist and, he, and saw him as a liability in the 1944 election. Wallace was a closet mystic, a teetotaler, meaning he didn't drink, and a vegetarian. He very much thought humanity was capable of building a utopian society with perfect people. Wallace came from money. He was ironically the wealthiest candidate in 1948, having made a fortune in corn. 
He always looked a little unkempt uh, with his ruffled hair and an ill-fitting wrinkled suit. After leaving the vice presidency, Wallace served as Secretary of Commerce for Roosevelt. After the death of FDR, though, Truman and Wallace had a falling out over American foreign policy. Wallace argued America had no moral responsibility or right to halt the growth of communism. He believed that the United States and the Soviet Union were fundamentally morally equivalent and that Soviet occupation of Eastern Europe was legitimate. He called for a return to Roosevelt's policy of cooperation with the Soviets. Wallace, like many American populists at the time, had a distrust of the British and believed that the nation was being manipulated by them to remain committed to international involvement in other people's business. Wallace believed that the same moral principles which govern private life should govern international affairs. In his view, America had lost its moral compass and was practicing a villainous Machiavellian foreign policy. He argued that since prejudice, hatred, and fear were the root causes of international conflict, the United States had no moral right to intervene abroad until it had banished these scourges from its own society. As Wallace traveled the country in 1947, people urged him to run. The liberal intellectual elite praised his integrity and viewed Wallace as the rightful heir to the New Deal mantle. Wallace, meanwhile, fumed as Truman reorganized the military in 1947 and reintroduced the draft. So on December the 29th, 1947, Wallace declared his candidacy for the presidency. Truman had a plan for victory, though. Clark Clifford and James Rowe, advisors to Truman, drew up a battle plan to deal with both Wallace and the Republicans. They first assumed that Dewey would be the Republican candidate. Second, they assumed that Wallace would run on a third-party ticket. Truman would attempt to isolate Wallace, and whenever possible, he should be attacked from the left, but never by Truman himself. Therefore, people like Eleanor Roosevelt would attack him. Uh, They would label Wallace and his supporters as communists. Truman would then focus on votes in Western states, organized labor, and African Americans. Therefore, Truman would have to move the civil rights agenda forward to keep their loyalty. Truman had appointed a commission which produced a report calling calling on the end of Jim Crow and segregation. This report would serve as the basis for his civil rights program in 1947 in addition to ending segregation in the armed services. Personally, similar to politicians today on LGBT rights, Truman's views on race had evolved. Truman himself was a descendant of small slaveholders in Kentucky and Missouri. In Washington, he still used the N-word to describe African Americans. But Truman believed that racism was something of the past. He believed that the South was living 80 years behind the times. Truman didn't favor social equality amongst the races, but he did favor equality of opportunity under the law, meaning black children should have the same access to education as whites and black workers the same access to good jobs. Truman also worked hard to secure the Jewish vote. In ordinary times, the Jewish vote would be considered solidly democratic. FDR had carried the Jewish vote by 92% in 1944. But this year, the vote was up for grabs. Two and a half million Jews lived in New York City, and Dewey had won a sizable number in 1946. 65% of American Jews lived in three key states, New York, Pennsylvania, and Illinois. Winning these votes would be vital in securing these states for Truman to win the presidency. The biggest issue for these Jewish voters was, of course, Israel. Truman struggled with the issue as his advisors were split. Eventually, Truman came out in favor of the creation of Israel, which helped him secure the Jewish vote in the upcoming election. 
Organized labor of the AFL and CIO, large unions here in America, would replace the failed political machines of the Democrats and would become the new engine of the party. In 1948, 31% of the American workforce belonged to a union. Today, in contrast, it stands at 11%. There are about 15 million union workers. Unions themselves employed about 55,000 people and collected 400 million annually in dues. That's about roughly $4 billion in today's money. Truman would rail against Wall Street and against the business establishment to win support of labor. Truman had gained a lot of confidence from the unions with his veto of Taft-Hartley in 1947 as well, despite the fact Congress had overridden his veto. In the West, Truman would play to the fears of the farmers and their distrust of Wall Street and the Northeast establishment to win their support. Clifford and Rowe agreed that the South would scream, but in the end, they would still solidly vote Democratic. And therefore, if Truman won New New York, Pennsylvania, Illinois, New Jersey, Ohio, and Massachusetts, he would have 216 of the needed 266 electoral votes to win. The other 50 could be picked up from states like Missouri, Maryland, or Indiana. Despite the strength and clairvoyancy of this plan, many people in the Democratic Party didn't support Truman. They wanted him to step down in favor of another candidate. Eleanor Roosevelt her son James Roosevelt, and ADA were lukewarm about his candidacy. The two leading liberal journals, The Nation and The New Republic, said that he couldn't win the election. The New York Times even said that Truman would lose the nomination in July. Many saw him as an uneducated country hick and a corrupt politician who had wormed his way into the White House. Most of Roosevelt's former staff and much of the Democratic elite had come from money and the nation's best schools, such as Harvard and Yale. It was hard for them to take orders from Truman, a man who hadn't attended college at all and was from the farmland of America. James Roosevelt was especially dangerous as he had his own presidential ambitions and was a member of the powerful California delegation to the Democratic Convention. Gallup polling had predicted a loss in the head-to-head contest between favored Republican candidate Dewey and Truman, even in traditional Democratic states like Pennsylvania and Illinois. I want to thank you for listening to the History of the Cold War podcast, Episode 12, Part 1, the 1948 election. Make sure you join us for our next episode, September the 1st, where we will be examining the Southern reaction to Truman's civil rights program. We will look at the Progressive Party and what went wrong. We will also take a closer examination of the Republican Party and their primary election. So join us again on September the 1st as we continue to look back at the 1948 election. And also, don't forget to let your friends know about us. Also, help us out through supporting the show through Patreon on our website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Any donation size is accepted and appreciated, and if you have a moment, fill out our survey there to help us bring you a better show. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th. 
Join InClub or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.